Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. I was meant to be interviewing today's guest today. Jeremy Hunt and I were meant to be doing this live at the Other Palace Theatre... Uh, in Victoria, and it's one of the things I really miss as a result of this lockdown, as well as the pub and football and friends and family, is doing those live gigs. I really miss them. There's a real atmosphere there on the night, and it's such a pleasure. I can't wait when all this is over to go back to doing them, but I was really pleased that Jeremy honoured the date and um, agreed to come on the show anyway. Hopefully, I can get him to come and do the live show, because it, it does make for a different interview. But this was brilliant. And there's so much in this. Not just about what it's like to go from being a Secretary of State for a brief to then being the chair of that select committee. Um, but so, And also the role of a select committee chair at a time like this and the way he interprets it. And I don't want to tread on what he's going to say, but it's really interesting about how you try and nudge and push and cajole your own side into doing what you think is the right thing at a time like this without being difficult, I suppose, or without politicising it. So that's a really interesting discussion. There is as well some amazing detail from his time as Foreign Secretary about trying to get Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe freed and the conversations he was having with the Iranian regime and the things they were saying to him. No more spoilers. I'm sure you'll love it. I started by asking Jeremy about these new ways of doing democracy uh, in Parliament and how he has found chairing a select committee remotely. Well, I have to say that I think that Parliament has stepped up to the plate. Um, One of the things that was very striking to me Uh, when the virus started, was this very strong sense in Parliament that it should continue to sit throughout. And uh, although Parliament rose uh, over the Easter recess, the select committees carried on doing hearings during that recess. And the government didn't question that at all. It absolutely went along with the idea that parliamentary scrutiny was was very important. I think because they recognised that in a situation like this, public consent is very important. Mm. And that means the public need to feel that their voices are being heard and that the normal mechanisms that allow ministers to be scrutinised are actually happening. But you also need to protect yourself. Um, as we know, politicians aren't immune to this uh, to this virus. For those who are entering into the parliamentary estate, going into the House of Commons... I mean, it's important that democracy functions, but aren't they increasing the risk to themselves and to their loved ones? Yes, and so that's why we're operating remotely. And you do pay a price with that. Um, You know, there's no cut and thrust in any debate. Um, You can't imagine someone giving a Churchillian speech (laughs) on Zoom. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there is essentially... uh, a lack of interaction. So what you get when you ask questions remotely 
is you get less grandstanding, which is a good thing. People ask yeah. more sensible questions. They're cut to the chase. Um, and that's good. But people also can rabbit on for a very long time as well um, because they're not getting those social signals from people around them telling them to you know, shut up. And yeah. so um, there are pros and cons. But I would say that overall, um, people are proud of the fact that we're in a very robust democracy, which continued right the way throughout the Second World War. We even disposed of a victorious prime minister uh, during the Second World War, which you know, to me, who wasn't alive at the time, it just looks the most extraordinary thing. I mean, why would you do that? But that is the proud tradition of our democracy. And um, and I think that actually has stood us in good stead, because if you look at the biggest catastrophe of this international coronavirus crisis, it is without doubt the fact that it was covered up in China at the very outset. And that was because you had a totalitarian country where the government had control of information and they didn't want bad news to get out. And, you know, I think the lesson of this crisis has been that open societies that debate honestly the best way forward tend to get the best solutions. Just on what the effect has been on select committees, we've seen it on parliamentary debates and we saw it in Prime Minister's questions the other week that it, it calms things down and it has all the implications that you suggested. Do you find that with a select committee, some of the intensity is lost, that the pressure of having someone there in a room with a committee uh, horseshoeing around them puts a particular pressure on a, on a um, select committee guest, I suppose. Is that intensity lost now in the, in the online period? Um, it is, um, yes. Um, you can't really create that that special atmosphere that you get in a in a tense House of Commons Select Committee hearing. But remember that a lot of the influence of a Select Committee is also what you do in the media. Very often, the um, the Select Committee hearings are very good moments for gathering information. But um, you know, as a Select Committee chair, you have a platform in the media and that's that's very important so there are different ways that you can make the voice of a select committee heard but the key point i think about a select committee at its best is that you're not looking to score any political points you are uh, a mechanism for trying to uncover the truth about what the best policy might be in a particular situation and um, if you can get that balance right then that has a very important function in a national emergency you have a unique perspective on all this because you've been a secretary of state and a chair of a select committee for the same brief so you're your game to your gamekeeper turned poacher um having stood on both sides of that fence which do you prefer well i think um they're both an enormous privilege and um i think it's true to say that at the times that I've done both those jobs, I've, I've preferred the one I was doing at the time. <laughs> but um, what you, um, obviously, as health secretary, that is a, a, a much more important job, and you have ultimate responsibility for um, implementing whatever policy the government decides on. Um, but you also have to play a political game. When I was health secretary, I was I felt like I was doing two jobs at the same time. There was the job of being responsible for 1.4 million people in the NHS and helping to improve health outcomes. And that's the fifth largest organization in the world. So that's a, a pretty full-time <laughs> job. 
And then at the same time as that, you're constantly going to Parliament, answering questions, going to select committees, um, dealing with a narrative that, you know, in my case was always about you're privatising the NHS, you're cutting the NHS budget. There was a narrative there, a political narrative, that often bore no relation to the narrative of what was actually happening on the ground. So it felt like two parallel jobs uh, that you were doing. And when you're a select committee chair, you don't have that sense. You're, you're just interested in uh, finding out what the best policies are in any given situation and uh, making the case for those. Your experience as Secretary of State must help you know as a select committee chair how to ask the right questions in the right way to get questions out of a Secretary of State who, when you were Secretary of State, I'm sure you're trying to give honest answers, but you're also trying to not embarrass yourself. You're, there's certain information you might not want to give away, certain things perhaps you don't want to give full answers on. Having that experience of having sat in front of a select committee must be such an advantage because not every select committee chair has that history in that, in that experience. Yes, but you're not trying to score political points. You're not trying to embarrass the Secretary of State, or at least that's my approach. Um, I think that what you have as someone who's done that job is a perspective that implementation, delivery, is as important as policy. So you can have a fantastic policy to improve our cancer survival rates, um, but actually unveiling the policy is the easy bit. It's you know, we've got the best cancer experts in the world here and getting them to put their heads together and come up with a plan that will give us uh, cancer survival rates that are as good as they are in France or Germany. That, that's relatively straightforward. Making it happen over a period of uh, maybe five years, that's much more challenging. And so um, asking questions about implementation and delivery is something that I think select committees don't do enough of. Um, and certainly something we want to do. And what about the relationship between the Secretary of State for Health and the Chair of the Select Committee? Obviously, it depends on what party they are. If they're in the same party, perhaps that changes things. You and Matt Hancock, from a similar Conservative tradition, you seem to get on. I mean, it, it, does that help, do you think, the committee hold the department to account more if you know the person and you can be perhaps a bit more direct with them in private? Um, of course, I, I have a lot of respect for Matt, and my goodness me, he's got the most difficult job in Britain right now. And uh, you know, having worn that crown for a while, I I fully understand the pressures he's under, um, and I hope that he also understands that um, whilst I have to hold him to account, I want to do so in a constructive way. I think that uh, the best way to shed light on health policy is to focus a lot on best practice all over the world. And, and I certainly think that when I was health secretary, I used to look at, for example, the um, maternity safety record in Sweden, which has about half the number of neonatal deaths that we have uh, relative to population, and say, you know, what are they doing right? What do we need to learn from that? Uh, look at the technology use in America. It's not a health system we would ever want to copy, but their use of technology is, is second to none. And say, are there things that they, they do with technology in America and electronic health records that, that we could do here? So I think if the discussion is, you know, on coronavirus, you know, they're doing this tracking and tracing in, in South Korea. They're doing this testing in Germany. Couldn't we be doing it 
in the UK, then that's a constructive discussion. It's not a sort of Yabu sucks discussion. And I think that's uh, that's the role that um, that you want to play as a select committee chair. How conscious are you of not looking like you're not necessarily trying to score points, but not saying, well, if I was Secretary of State for Health, I'd be doing this. When it's when you're talking about contact tracing, you've written in the Times and done various interviews about the importance of doing that. Do you have to be slightly careful that you're not looking like you're saying, well, if I was in charge, we'd have done this by now? Yes. And I think uh, that's why it's very important that what you're doing is constructively arguing for policies that you can see have uh, worked in other countries. Um, you know, I never had to deal with a pandemic the way that Matt's having to deal with now. So um, I can't point to anything that I did uh, that would have been, you know, fundamentally different to what he's done. Well, what I do know is that when you're in his shoes, you don't have a crystal ball and you can't possibly get every judgment right. So the most you can reasonably ask of a Secretary of State in those situations is um, when um, you get something wrong, do you learn? Do you keep your eyes open to what's going on around the world? And I think to his credit, he has done that. We are now well on our way to uh, being able to emulate best practice. Who would have known two months ago that that was going to be this uh, tiny country called Korea, which was probably more famous for Gangnam style dancing than anything else. Um, they've done a fantastic job because actually their fingers were burnt in the MERS uh, epidemic of 2014 and the government got heavily criticised for not rolling out testing quickly enough and they learned from that and that's why they've done such an extraordinary job this time and we are now following that strategy and I don't think you can ask for more. Uh, we are. Uh, have you ever danced Gangnam Style? Uh, I think I'm allowed not to answer one question, aren't I, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might not be the be one honest. you want to waste uh, that on, though. You might that might that might turn out to be a nicer <laughs> question. <laughs> um, well, okay, we've uh, we we we've had the YouTube videos up, and uh, the kids have uh, sucked me into it once or twice. There we are. There's an answer. <laughs> So with Matt Hancock, when you're talking about contact tracing and things, does he ever get in touch and say, oh, Jeremy, come on, man, I was going to give me give me five minutes. I might have announced that. You know, you didn't have to go and write in the Times about it. Well, the nature of the role that I have is that the scrutiny has to be in public, not mm. in private. So I, I would always, you know, let him know if I'm, uh, you know, planning to write an article or something like that. But um, if if... Every everything I did was through picking up the phone to him and having a private conversation. Then uh, people at home would say, "Well, we don't have any scrutiny from the select committee, so it has to be done yeah. in public." But hopefully, it's done in a, in a courteous way. And when you were um, when you were Secretary of State, what was your relationship like with your select committee chairs? Well, I had two, um, and uh, Stephen Dora was the first, and Sarah Wollaston was the second. And it was always a perfectly courteous relationship. Um, but I knew that it was their job to hold me to account and that they weren't always going to be able to um, applaud me to the rafters. Um, but in fairness, I think they both were reasonable and constructive. And what what is a more daunting prospect as a Secretary of State? Is it health questions on the floor of the House of Commons or is it a select committee hearing? 
That's a very good question. Um, and I think the answer to that is probably, um, it's probably both in different ways. So, you know, the floor of the house, you've got cut and thrust and your, your political opponents trying to catch you out. And um, there's a huge uh, hubbub and an unpredictability. But what you have in a select committee is the ability for people to ask repeat questions. Mm -hmm. They can come back. Um, on the House of Commons, you've always got that advantage that you, you have the last word and they can only ask one question or in the case of the, the Shadow Health Secretary, two questions. But it's you then got the last word. Yes, and you can't grandstand in the same way at a select committee that you would on the floor of the House of Commons. You're not going to get the people behind you to cheer in the same way when you're in a committee room. The people behind you, apart from your civil servants perhaps, are are journalists and members of the public and the people in front of you. A couple of them might shook you the easy question, but I suppose it's a harder environment to blag in. Yes, I mean, I think... A select committee interview is much more like going on to the Today programme. Mm. Essentially, you've got to be very sure of your arguments and really know your arguments, and, and then you'll be fine. In the House of Commons, you can be sure of your arguments, but you can be caught out by a, a sort of political trick. Yeah. Um, and uh, someone can sort of lay a trap for you, which is a, a rhetorical trap, which actually doesn't have any policy substance. Just on contact tracing, because it's something that, you're, that you've been vocal about in a, in a constructive way. First and foremost, just in terms of how it works, how quickly could the country get a meaningful contact tracing system up and running? Well, the, the crucial question that you need to answer before you can answer that point is, what is the level of daily new infections uh, that you need uh, to be able to cope with in any contact tracing system. At the moment, we're getting we're running at around 4,000 a day. So if you're in a contact tracing, I mean, a contact tracing system, it's a slightly unfortunate name. Um, I would prefer to call it a rapid quarantining system. So what you're basically saying is that when you have a new case of coronavirus, uh, we are going to find it and then we're going to find anyone that that person has been in close contact with really quickly and we're going to isolate and quarantine them. That's the, the strategy so that you could have a normally functioning economy or, or relatively normally functioning economy, people going to work, people going to the shops, people going to offices. Um, so the sort of stuff we're not doing at the moment, but you're not worrying about it because the moment you get a case, you're checking it up. So that means that you've got to be able to test people immediately, you know, within, certainly within 24 hours, if someone calls up and says, I've got a fever, you've got to be able to test them, and then you've got to talk to who they've been near. So that's the process that's been used in, in Taiwan and Singapore and, and South Korea. Now, in, in South Korea at the moment, there's uh, less than 1,000 people doing contact tracing, but their rate of new infections is very low. And the government has said they think that at the moment we're still running at slightly too high rates of infection to uh, to do um, comprehensive contact tracing. And so they want to bring that down. So essentially, uh, we will need to bring down our daily level of new infections. Because if you think about it, 
uh, every one infection, you've got to test that person. You've got to send someone around to that person or possibly if they've downloaded an app, you might be able to do it electronically. But, but re in reality, the majority of the population are unlikely to be able to download apps when you think yeah. about um, old, older people and people in care homes. So, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of people. I think, uh, you know, we should be in a position to, in, in two to three weeks' time, which is the government's plan, to have the contact tracing teams up and running the 18,000 people they're recruiting um, and also um, have the uh, infection rates, the daily infection rates down to a level that we can switch from what we have now, which is a, a blunt tool, a mass lockdown, to what uh, contact tracing allows, which is a targeted lockdown of anyone who has coronavirus or anyone that they've been in contact with. So those 18,000 people then, what will they do? Are these people manning phones? So you, you ring them up and you tell them you've got it. And then do you have to contact the people you've been in touch with? I mean, for instance, let's say you've had a grocery delivery. You don't know the name of the guy that dropped it off or, or the name of the postman. How do you find those people? So the answer to that is that it's a, it's a mixture. Uh, you, uh, you might be able to do it remotely, there's a, <clears throat> I suppose there's a kind of dream outcome where someone calls in and they say, you know, my name is Jeremy Hunt, I've got a fever, and then a home delivery kit arrives through uh, a courier, and then they um, do the test remotely and send it off, um, and then you've got an app that's downloaded, and then you share the contents of your app with Public Health England, and they then trace everyone that you've been near, and it's done by the phone. That, I suppose, would be the ideal outcome. But there'll be other situations where you have, um, you know, a vulnerable older person who may not have an app, and you may actually need to go and see that person, and then you'll need to be dressed in PPE. Um, you'll need to do the swab test. You'll need to talk to that person about who they've been near. And on the whole... Um, you know, if, if it's a delivery driver who's just dropping off a package, um, I'm not an expert in this, but but you might let that go. Uh, my understanding is that it's sustained contact, okay? Because it's it's through the droplets that's what you're worried about. So it's the sustained contact, and generally, I think in contact tracing, you've got to be able to trace, you know, over eighty percent of someone's contact. So not a hundred percent, but eighty percent, and then it's effective. So these 18,000 people, who are they employed by? Are they employed by Public Health England? Are they employed directly by the NHS, by the department? Who, who effectively runs this? Well, that's a decision that the government has to make. Um, and, um, you know, they, I, I floated the idea that it could be done by local authorities because I think they know their areas and I think they could do it extremely well. And you've got you know, environmental health officers who do a form of a different form of contact tracing when there are environmental scares. So, um, you know, that's really a decision for the government to take. Um, I think we've learned in the last couple of months that sometimes centralised structures can take too long to get going really quickly. But, you know, in the end, it doesn't matter how we do it. What matters is that we get the system up and running. But there might be a danger that, I mean, with either way, whether it's Public Health England or whether it's the NHS directly or whether it's local authorities, that then inevitably some areas will be more effective perhaps at, at delivering these things than others. Yes, and, you know, we need to understand 
just how narrow the margin is between success and failure because uh, Professor Chris Whitty said a couple of days ago that the R rate, the rate at which the virus is reproducing is 0.75. So on average, one person is infecting 0.75 of another person. In other words, the virus is starting to die out because it's below one. If you don't do this contact tracing effectively and the R rate goes above one, then the virus is growing again. And so that's why this is uh, such a, a finely balanced thing and, and there isn't room for failure. And the test itself is the antibody test, to test if you've had it at all, not just whether you've currently got it or not. Um, no, the primary test that you're trying to find out is, do you have it? Okay. Can you pass it on to someone else? That's why, you know, this is really a, a quarantining strategy. Um, the antibody test is a bit more complex. That theoretically might tell you if you've got some immunity, if you had it a few months ago, and therefore you could be safe to go back to work. The problem with the antibody test is that this is a new virus and no one knows quite how long the immunity lasts. And um, and we haven't yet got an antibody test that actually works either. So, um, you know, there might be a role for antibody tests at some stage, but at the moment, the one that really matters is the virus test. You talked about bringing in a testing czar as well to have a, a single person in charge of all this. Why can't that person be the Secretary of State? Well, the Secretary of State has to do everything. So the Secretary of State is responsible for the NHS response. Uh, it's responsible for all the other treatments the NHS is doing, cancer, mental health, uh, maternity services, and also, so so very often it's helpful to have someone working for you who's very, very competent, who just focuses on one very important task, just yeah. as uh, Paul Dyson was brought in to help sort out the issues in PPE, manufacturing and distribution. So that, that was my only thinking. Well, I think it's a good idea. I think a lot of people would agree with it. And, and in the article in the Times, you mentioned numerous people, including Andy Street, who's the often cited uh, conservative uh, mayor for the West Midlands, who used to run John Lewis. Um, I just wonder with those things, whether it's a way sometimes of politicians deflecting a bit of political flack and saying, well, actually, we, we put this guy in charge of the testing. So it's it's now off the Secretary of State's table. I don't think so. I would say, you know, it's it's a different purpose. I mean, we talked earlier about one of the things that I learned having done the role is that implementation is every bit as hard as coming up with the right policy. So as your Secretary of State, you're always thinking about what is the next policy. So for example, Matt Hancock now will be very closely engaged in what is the right policy for lifting the lockdown. You know, do we let people go back to school? Do we um, allow garden centres to be open? What, whatever. And as he's thinking about those things, you know, he may want to know that there is someone highly competent who is just making sure that the contact tracing teams are being set up in every part of the country. And I think that's the that's the advantage, really. It's 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 about delegating to someone really effective. And I suppose my point was really sometimes you get very good people from outside government who've got experience uh, that is different to the civil service machine, which tends to its core strengths tend to be in policy making rather than delivery. 
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How hard is it to be a conservative health secretary? Michael Hazeltine famously described the Home Office as a minefield and there are certain briefs that perhaps... Um, politicians from different parties might prefer to have. It must be very difficult to be a Conservative Health Secretary, even if you're increasing investment, because as you said at the start of the interview, there will always be a suspicion, some might say justified, that deep down some elements of the Conservative Party want to dismantle the NHS and sell it off, even if that's not what you think. That constant battle must be quite exhausting. Well, I always said, I used to joke actually when I was Health Secretary, that I was the safest person in the cabinet because no one else wanted my job. Um, and um, so I, I think that, um, you know, conservative health secretaries have this particular challenge that, you know, in my political lifetime, uh, when the Labour Party has wanted to defeat us at a general election uh, and they're looking for a message that they can paint in primary colours that they think will really resonate with the electorate, uh, they end up retreating back to you can't trust the Tories with the NHS. And um, I think the lesson of certainly the last 15 years is it doesn't work because the electorate is smart enough to know that if the Conservatives had wanted to dismantle the NHS, it would have been done a long time ago. And we don't. And indeed, it was a Conservative health minister in 1944 who first uh, presented to Parliament the idea that we should have a national health service um, and it would have been set up by the Conservatives if we'd won the 1945 election. So, um, Whoa, that, 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 that's, <laughs> I mean, there's, I know there are different readings of history and the, the Lib Dems claim it because of beverage, but really, surely only Nybevan would have created the NHS in, in the way that he did. Oh, sure. I think, you know, he was the health secretary and he um, put through the act that set up the NHS and it definitely had his flavour on it. I'm sure it would have been different if it had been done by any of the other parties. But the point was that the idea that we should have a free, at the point of delivery, national health service funded through taxation was a cross-party idea. Um, It was set up by a Labour government 
for which they deserve enormous credit. Um, uh, but it wasn't uh, only the Labour Party's idea, but because it's part of the, the sort of, because it's the single achievement of which I think the Labour Party is most proud, um, and, and they should be proud because it was a very important thing to achieve, um, they have always wanted to claim it for their own. And then I think you add to that uh, the fact that Margaret Thatcher was a, a great privatizer mm. um, and a very successful privatizer. And it was very easy to peddle the idea that, um, you know, if, you know, that if they could, the Tories would really like to privatize the NHS, which, which isn't true. But I think that creates a particular pressure for conservative health secretaries. Um, and, you know, I had two general elections as health secretary, which Labour tried in both cases to turn into a referendum on the NHS. Um, and so that was difficult. And I think on top of that, in my period as health secretary, I had the challenge of austerity. You know, we were in a period where the NHS budget was protected. In fact, it went up um, quite significantly when I was health secretary, but it didn't go up at the kind of rates that it had been going up in the decade prior. And that was very, very tough on the NHS and the people working in the NHS. That period may come under sharper focus when we're on the other side of, of this crisis and people say, well, what are the, the root causes of, of Britain's response to it? There's been talk about why we hadn't stockpiled the certain amounts of PPE, but do you, th do you think that austerity will have played any role in perhaps slowing the capability of the NHS when this crisis hit? I don't think so, but I would say that I think that for sure there will be lessons that governments prior to this government and health secretaries prior to this health secretary needs to learn. Um, we have always been considered to be one of the best prepared healthcare systems for a global pandemic. We were rated, I think, second in the world by the Global Health Security Index, which is set up by an American university. Um, and we are well known for our pandemic preparations. Um, and so I don't think that changed with austerity. But um, what I think we will look back on and say is that we did a lot of preparation for pandemic flu, but um, maybe we should have done more preparation for a pandemic that was a kind of SARS or MERS style virus, um, which would have got us thinking more about the need to expand testing capacity very fast and um, you know so I did a very big pandemic flu exercise in 2016 called Operation Cygnus but that was for pandemic flu and we were looking about looking at you know what would happen when the NHS fell over with we were modeling 750,000 deaths so you can look at the scale now we we're one of the few countries that actually did this kind of modeling did these kind of exercises um, but should we have also been thinking at that time about uh, a SARS-style pandemic or a MERS-style pandemic um, and the testing, tracking and tracing approach? Well, I think in retrospect, we can see that the Asian countries that were scarred by SARS and MERS are the ones that had the best reaction to coronavirus. Uh, and the Western countries, where our experience was more in dealing with flu, um, had a less effective reaction. And I'm sure that will be one of the things that we learn. Those decisions to, to, con to 
con- uh, concentrate more and to prepare more for a flu pandemic are taken presumably based on some evidence that um, people thought that was more likely. Yes, and I, I mean, you know, as a Secretary of State, you uh, follow the scientific advice you're given about what you need to prepare for. But I think we're all going to have to, you know, think long and hard about uh, the things that we could have done better. Um, you know, Dominic Raab has been very honest about this and said there are, of course, and Michael Gove, I think, yesterday said, of course, there are things that we will realise we could have done differently and better. I think it's very difficult to draw those lessons right now because we're still absolutely in the middle of it. You know, we don't know what our our final death rate will be compared to other countries. We don't know if there's going to be a second or third wave. Um, and so it's premature, I think, to try and draw those conclusions just now. When you talk about learning lessons and things, some politicians find that very hard because we live in a culture where it's not just about wanting to learn lessons in a practical and pragmatic way. Some elements of the public and, and the political sphere will want to apportion blame and they will want people sacked or uh, to be the subject of inquiries and things. I mean, do, do you have any anxiety about that? You, you, you seem to take a very pragmatic, practical approach to it. But do you think, oh, God, you know, if this, if this goes the wrong way, there might be a blame game. And anyone who's been Secretary of State for Health in the last 20 years might be hauled up in front of a court and, you know, might become the fall guy. Well, there has to be accountability for people in public office. That is fundamental to our democracy. I, I prefer the word accountability to blame um, because um, I don't think it's possible to do a, a job like health secretary and not make some mistakes. And the important thing is, uh, are we open about those? Do we learn from them? Do we make sure that we're better prepared next time? But, you know, you don't go into politics unless you prepared to accept public accountability for what you do uh, the independent reported that the, the the nhs staff should have received certain protective equipment three years ago in the event of an influenza pandemic but stockpiling it was considered too expensive do you think that's the sort of thing that people will look back on and perhaps be angry about well i haven't seen that report that says that so i mean you're i think speculating on the contents of a report uh, the the operation, the pandemic flu exercise that I did, the principal recommendations were around preparing emergency legislation, which were followed up in enormous detail. And indeed, we used that legislation for coronavirus. Unfortunately, we got to the point where we, we had to use that emergency legislation. So I think, you know, lessons, very important lessons were learned from the pandemic exercises that happened when I was in office, but you know, are there going to be other things that we have to learn? Of course, um, you can't go through something as profound and um, you know life-changing as this pandemic without finding other things uh, that we could have learned. And the same will apply, incidentally, to countries like Germany and, and South Korea um, that that have um, had highly effective responses to coronavirus as well. When you were health secretary, there was a perception um, that perhaps you wanted more funding for the NHS, but the the prime ministers you were serving under were were maybe less enthusiastic about giving you that money. Is is that a fair assessment of of your experience? Well, I think perhaps that's unfair to the prime ministers that I served under, because you know every 
cabinet minister uh, has to lobby for more resources for their own department. Um, and in my case, uh, there were two very big moments to do that. One was in the run up to the 2015 election when I persuaded George Osborne to increase the annual budget of the NHS by eight billion pounds a year, uh, which was a huge amount, which was in order to deliver the plan that Simon Stevens had put together for the NHS. And the second was under Theresa May when I had to lobby her and Philip Hammond for the 20 billion pound increase. So I spent an awful lot of time and energy lobbying for additional resources. Um, but you would expect a government that wants to spend money wisely to, um, you know, to put you through your paces to make sure that you've got strong arguments. As well as um, perhaps still reflecting on what you would do if you were health secretary, you're also in a position where you can reflect on what you would have done if you were prime minister. You, you became very close to becoming prime minister just a few months ago, and a lot has happened in that time. It's a real sliding doors moment. I mean, do you ever sit there and think, well, I'd have done this differently to Boris? I wouldn't have missed those Cobra meetings or whatever it is. Well, um, of course, I would have been a very different prime minister to Boris because we're very different characters. But I think um, if you look at the core promise that Boris made in that leadership election, it was that he was going to sort Brexit and put that issue behind us. And I think that we're not yet um, out of the transition period, but he has fundamentally delivered on that promise and exceeded expectations. He hasn't just delivered Brexit, but he's delivered an 80 seat majority for the Conservatives. He's given the country political stability. And I think that is extremely impressive. And so I think that, uh, you know, I look back on that period and I, I have to say, I, I feel tremendous respect for Boris that he has done exactly what he said he would do. And during the contest, I think it's fair to say he was the favourite because of the, the complexion of the Conservative Party, the issue of Brexit. But was there any point in that contest where you thought you were in with a chance of winning it? I think there was a movement towards me during the six weeks of the uh, the campaign the members campaign um you know who knows if uh, I, I don't think we were ever really within touching distance of the the finish line but if if it had gone on significantly longer perhaps i might have had more of a fighting chance i thought the andrew neil interview i mean we're living in different times but i, I felt watching the andrew neil interview that you were just <laughs> clearer answers and we're, we're just came across as so much more capable and serious but I suppose with Brexit overshadowing everything in a way there must have been I don't know whether it was frustrating for you it, it, in a way it didn't matter what you did because of Brexit well I think that that was the dominant issue uh, and I was someone who voted Remain and that was never going to change and so um, although I would have delivered Brexit and I was absolutely committed to it. I could understand why the party membership were clear that they wanted someone who had campaigned for Brexit from the outset. You were Foreign Secretary as well for a period of time and we were very active in trying to get Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe freed from um, a prison in Iran. She's obviously been released throughout this um, pandemic. I mean, what other hopes do you think of her being returned to Britain after after this is all done? 
Well, I think we are all hoping, um, but I think we're hoping with a certain element of caution because um, because um, we've all had our hopes dashed in the past. Um, but I think what one hopes is that with the world preoccupied by coronavirus, the Iranian regime might think that this is a a good moment to bury bad news from their point of view. And uh, if she came home, you know, the headlines might be over in a day. So that's the, the hope we have. The fact is that she is innocent and the Iranian regime has practiced this hostage taking for many years. And if it wasn't for her courage and that of her husband, Richard Radcliffe, the world wouldn't know about this. But because of what they've done, uh, and the way they've called out hostage taking by the Iranian regime, this has made it a practice that's much harder for Iran to carry on in a cost-free way. And so I, I think that Nazanin has, has helped stop other people being kidnapped in this way and, you know, is a very, very brave lady and indeed has his husband a very brave man. When you're foreign secretary trying to get someone like Nazanin released, what is the process? What are the levers that you have? Well, you have your private conversations with people like the Iranian foreign minister, Jawad Zarif. I went to Tehran to meet him. And then you have, you know, the power of what you say publicly. And you you have to do both. And, you know, the instinct inside the FCO is always to focus on the private conversations but you also do have to do stuff publicly to show people you're serious and you mean what you're saying. And uh, when you say to me that you're to show that you're serious, is that what's that mean in terms of just raising it or, or does there have to be an element of threat or sanction? I think both. I mean, you know, every regime, however evil cares about their image and cares about their reputation and I was the first foreign secretary who said publicly that Nazanin was innocent. We had a line before that, which is that we don't comment on the court processes in other countries. And I, I moved on from that. And uh, that, I think, made it very clear to the Iranians that we weren't beating about the bush. Um, and so public statements do have an important role to play. And how did the foreign Commonwealth uh, civil servants take that departure from, from the previous line? Well... They are absolute professionals. They are extraordinarily bright. And they are willing to have that debate with you. And I always listen very carefully to the advice I had. Um, but because they're such professionals, they also understand that the Foreign Secretary will sometimes accept their advice and sometimes won't. And indeed, sometimes you have two bits of the Foreign Office that will give conflicting advice. And that's as it should be, because then the Foreign Secretary has to make the final decision. So um, as long as you, as long as I think, as long as they feel that you're listening carefully to their advice, as I certainly did, um, they understand that in the end, it's a politician's job to make the final decision. And when you're talking to your opposite number, in, in this case in Iran, are they saying to you, I think she's guilty, I'm sorry, Jeremy, you got this wrong? Or do they say, look, we've got to make a show of this because this is the way we do things? They, they didn't try and ever try and persuade me that she was guilty. I mean, I wow. think they, they know perfectly well that she's innocent. So they didn't even bother to try that particular tack. Um, I mean, they didn't, didn't say she was innocent, but they didn't uh, uh, ever 
tried to persuade me in private that uh, I got it wrong and that she really was a spy. She isn't a spy. And, and I think both sides around the table knew that. So what sort of excuse do they use? Oh, it's sort of, you know, if you, um, if you keep quiet about this, it'll be much easier for me to lobby the government internally to try and get the result we both want. It's that sort of line. Okay. Um, when you were Foreign Secretary, not just when you were Foreign Secretary, but your, your name was continually mispronounced by some very prominent broadcasters. I mean, it's, is that something that's always happened? Or once James Naughty did it, did that then, do you think, lodge it in people's heads and people couldn't stop saying it? Um, look, I think it's... Uh... You know, we've all got our crosses to bear, and this is a really small one in the grander scheme of things, and I'm perfectly used to it. Um, I think actually, uh, really what happened was that when James Nocty made that mistake, there was a short period in which every broadcaster or interviewer was absolutely terrified they were going to make the same mistake. And you could almost hear a sort of split-second pause before my surname was mentioned, where people were kind of making an effort not to fall into the trap that he did and and then we all moved on actually because it well, it just it felt like once he did it it was just happening all the time and i mean i, I don't know what i suppose people have puns on their name and it was it seemed to be a genuine mistake every time was there ever anything that offended you or were you able to see the funny side as much as everyone else was i look it didn't uh, it didn't offend me it's just one of those uh, one of those things um I can think of far worse brickbats that are thrown at politicians than. Uh, um, uh, I, I remember it, um, in in an election campaign in my constituency, someone put up some graffiti which said, uh, "I'm no gynaecologist, but I know a hunt when I see one." And uh, so, I, I think sometimes there was an element of wit about these things. <laughs> yeah, you don't mind the more cerebral end of the. Uh... Of the, of the spectrum, perhaps, if it's more than just just doing the rhyme. Um, we began by talking about China and, and the effect that living in a free and open society has on a, on a state's ability to control the virus and the global implications of, of countries that don't do that. Just thinking about your time as Foreign Secretary and, and, and what the global response might be to China after this, will it be about not just opening up information, but dealing with things like the wet markets as well? Yes. And, um, you know, there's a big uh, battle going on to try and argue from the Chinese side that uh, their kind of totalitarian state run approach has been much more effective than dealing uh, dealing with coronavirus. Um, And from the American point of view, that uh, the wet markets and the suppression of information at the early stages made it a lot worse. And the truth is both narratives have an element of truth. Um, we certainly all have realised how interdependent we are when our economy can be paralysed by something that happens in a wet market in China. And although they banned um, the trading of exotic animals, they haven't banned wet markets. Um, At the same time, it is also true, perhaps an inconvenient truth, but nonetheless true that China was much more effective at suppressing the virus when they did face up to it than most people predicted. Hmm. You have um, you, you have a personal connection to China. Your wife is Chinese. Um, do you think that helps you get a, a kind of better perspective on, on the situation there? 
Yes, I, I think it certainly means that I've got lots of uh, family connections with China. Um, but, um, you know, that that always reminds me that, you know, underneath everything, we're all the same human beings. Um, but when it comes to the Chinese regime, I'm always very conscious that our values are very different. And, um, you know, and I think that one of the things that's going to be incredibly important is the battle for ideas and uh, making the argument for free, open, liberal societies going forward. My dad was a naval officer in the 1960s, 70s and 80s when we had the Cold War. And we had the battle of ideas then. And none of us took for granted that the Western way was going to be the way that ended up predominating. And I think we are going to have that argument in this century. And it's going to be, um, in a way, a more challenging argument to make because the Soviet Union didn't have the economic strength that China has. And um, you know, I think that we are going to need to find a way of living alongside China uh, with mutual respect, but in a way that doesn't compromise the values that we believe in. Your mother-in-law has a nickname for you, Mr. Big Rice. Is that right? That's not quite, that, that was a kind of uh, leadership campaign, uh, slight exaggeration of a story, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, uh, there are a few family nicknames around, uh, uh, some of them more repeatable, others less. What? So, if it's not Mr. Big Rice, what, what 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 does she mean when she says that, or, or whatever the similar equivalent is? I'm not going to get drawn on that one, Matt. I hope I hope I've been open enough in my other answers yeah, well, to uh, avoid the, avoid getting drawn on that one. But the mystery is tantalising. I mean, it's a great nickname. <laughs> well, uh, I'll have to let you be tantalised a bit longer. <laughs> I'm afraid. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. It's been absolutely brilliant. Not at all, man. Well, there you go, Jeremy Hunt. I thought that was just from start to finish fascinating, particularly the stuff about dealing with the Iranian regime around the release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, I just thought was incredible. Um, but there was something even more profound. I think he's got a real gift for talking about politics and taking the sting out of it. And if you think about what he's suggesting at the moment about contact tracing. This is a former Conservative Health Secretary um, and now Chair of a Select Committee, so someone still with that level of status, openly asking another Conservative Health Secretary, another Conservative government, to do something they're currently not doing. Now, in the wrong hands, that would be treachery and skullduggery, but when Jeremy Hunt talks about it, you get a sense that this is a pragmatic intervention, that politicians will have different views about how to negotiate their way through this crisis, and this is his view, and he puts it in a way that I think makes it more likely to be heard. And I think that's a real lesson about the time in which we live and the way we talk to and about each other, about our political ideas, that the Jeremy Hunt way of doing it... uh, it's just far more effective now. People may disagree, but I just got that that sense of relentless reasonableness and that was really refreshing. Um, email the show with your thoughts and reflections, politicalparty at gmail.com, and do let me know where you listen. Uh, Paul listens in South Korea. Um, so it doesn't always have to be far-flung places, but it's cool when they are. Um, Bella got in touch um, 
after listening to a previous episode, Rosie Campbell, which was a real treat of an episode. Now, I'd totally forgotten this. She says, at the end, you mentioned having a trip to Parliament um, with some listeners and Rosie. Did this ever happen? It hasn't happened. Um, Whether it will ever happen or not, I don't know. But it's one of those things where... I suppose it's almost like a drunken conversation. We go, we should start a business together, and then it never happens. But it is a great idea. So I I would like it to happen. So let's see if it ever does. Um, So thank you for all your emails. Thank you for those of you that have left iTunes reviews. It really does help, because it helps other people find the show. It pushes it up the charts, and um, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you to Jeremy Hunt for being such a wonderful guest, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. 